This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savor the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheeses are delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week, a slice of cheese explores the role of time in cheesemaking, not the herb time. We're looking at minutes, hours, weeks, years. Time is actually an invisible but important ingredient in cheese. We speak to cheesemonger Andy Swinsco of the Courtyard Dairy, cheesemaker Giles Barber of Barber's, raw milk cheese advocate Carlos Yeskes, cheesemaker Tim Jones of Lincolnshire Poacher, and discuss affinage, the maturing of cheese, which involves time, with Josh Windsor of Murray's Cheese in New York City and Ruri Buchanan of Buchanan's Cheesemongers in London. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me again, Andy Swinsco of the Courtyard Dairy. Good morning, Andy. Morning, Jenny. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show. This week, we're looking at the idea of time and cheese. Time as an ingredient, in a way, in inverted commas, in the making of cheese. Because it seems to me that it's really central to cheese and allows for a lot of fascinating sort of variety and diversity in cheese. And I thought you would be really well placed to sort of tell us a little bit more and unpick that, you know, slightly huge statement for me. Take, take me through a cheese counter in, in terms of time. I mean, yeah, well, cheese and time is, is, is one of those things that's completely tied in, uh, you know, because I think that a lot of people don't realise that well, we, we make cheese to preserve it and the longer we want to keep it, you know, the, the more we need to dry it out. So when you get a whole range of cheeses, you get them by how long they need to be consumed, how long they need to last, how fast they need to be consumed. And that's really where they play into to, to each other, really. And that's why you get your mm. wide range of cheeses, really, because, you know, you're trying to get softer, fresher cheeses, which are often consumed on the farm and made nearer cities so they can get to market fast and we're eating fast. Then you get like the, the bluer cheeses, which are made slightly further away. And sometimes we're made for gastronomy, but, you know, have a two or three month general aging period. And then you get the ones that are 
that are made to preserve milk for a long time. You know, the Parmesans, the Griots, and the Comtes in, in, in you know, in, in the continent, and then in Britain, cheddar. Designed mm. because they're, they're so far away from market in many cases, or they need to transport the cheese in the case of British cheeses, or, or in the case of things like Gouda, or, or you know, or, or in, sometimes things you get these really different cheese as well you go to mongolia you get like the little little jerky types of cheese they're like really leathery little really dry little bits which again are made really dry so that they can transport it and keep it a right. long time so that's an yeah. interesting point yes because i mean of course you know cheese's starting point is that it's um we're pres- you're preserving milk aren't you so that already that's time so you're fighting the effects of time on milk and yeah. one of the ways you preserve food is is by drying out you 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 create a dry environment so suppose yeah. that so then you know so it is the larger harder cheeses that can can mature you know successfully isn't it and yeah, yeah. and then, then we come to this idea of the sort of you know that sort of allure of age in a way and the idea that's that you know an extra mature cheddar is going to be more delicious than a mature cheddar or a you know that that also comes into cheese doesn't it that idea that we give a value to time but, but i'm guessing there's a little there's right time and wrong time too i'm guessing yeah exactly i mean a, a lot of people we, we call them month counters people think that older is necessarily better <laughs> and um and, and and i think that every cheese has a peak and it's about finding that peak not only for you as a personal consumer but also for the cheese itself and even within each individual batch of cheese so I'm looking for is balance. You know, I'm looking for balance of flavor. There is some cheeses that you want to be strong and powerful, and there's some cheeses you want to be light and fresh. Uh, um, for me, something like traditional Northern cheeses, in inverted commas, you know, the, the crumbly, fresher ones, you know, I like them at two or three months old. They're fresh, they're bright, they're zesty, they're clean, they're acidic, and that's how I like that profile of mm. cheese, and that's how I think it should be sold, you know. Yeah. Uh, you keep that, and that dulls. It doesn't improve, in my opinion. In the right. end, you might get big, powerful flavors, but something like a cheddar you know, the time time is quite a lot more key. And, and you know, you want nine or 10 months before flavors start to come through those richness. But then as those flavors will get stronger, there's a part, there's a point for me when those flavors are strong enough and you've got the other flavors still. And that's the time when it's at its best. Keeping it longer, it will be fine, but you will get more stronger flavors. And sometimes that's a detriment to some of the more subtle, complex flavors that are coming through, the milky, the buttery, the, the, the softer flavors. So yeah, so times are, you know, it's like a bell curve, you know, it's finding the right point for each cheese. And yeah. some of them slope off faster and slope in faster. And that's that, that comes with experience, but also with the cheese recipe, you know, a softer cheese, higher moisture, it's gonna mature faster, very nature of it. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, of course, you know, a lot of cheese making, well, probably all of it is involving growing, you know, the bacteria that you want. And again, that is something that takes time. So you've got the different sorts of, of bacteria, you know, within the cheeses, haven't you? And what give us a sense of the time frames? Like, for example, you know, a white, bloomy cheese. What, what's the, you know, is there a sort of average lifespan? And it, sorry, that's Yeah, so, I mean, most, most cheeses you can put into, I, you know, the French have what they call the eight families of cheese, um, which is a, a nice way to classify it. It's not, doesn't get everything in there, but it works quite well. And so you've got, like, softer, fresher cheeses, you know, uh, which are made, or more cheese are pretty much made on, on one or two days. Mm-hmm. and then matured um but you know the softer fresher ones are made with higher moisture content they're quite fresh they're quite light they're designed to be consumed fresh you know and then you so two two or three weeks tops and then you get those like the what we call the lactic natural viney cheeses like the little goat's cheeses you quite often see you can get it in cows like saint jude and you can get it in um sheeps as well but quite often the goat's cheeses now they're like a soft fresh cheese that's formed a rind that's broken down a little bit longer you know they're often sold from three to five weeks and then you start to get into your, what i would consider your classic soft cheeses like your breeze and your, and your washed rinds, your brie, your camembert, your, your poisse, your stinking bishop, your liver, all those types of cheeses. And they are a little bit firmer. 
they get rid of a bit more moisture from the milk and uh, so they last a little bit longer and then you're talking they're generally sold those types of cheeses between six and 12 weeks often about eight to ten when they're at that optimal ripeness um, then you get your hard cheeses. Now, hard cheeses, they get rid of a lot of moisture. So they're designed to be kept longer. They're designed to be more of a stable cheese. You still get younger varieties. You know, as I said, the fresh, crumbly mm-hmm. northern ones often, can, you know, some Wednesdays have been sold out for two weeks. But, you know, they're cheeses that will push out to three, four, five months. And then you're on to your really hard, dry cheeses like your cheddars, your gruyers, comptes, your parmesans that are often a, a year plus. Uh, yeah. And blues will kind of sit down with your your softer cheeses or your, you know, they're kind of the blue mold, even though they're quite firm cheese or the blue cheese, the blue mold is accelerating that development. So they're, they're ready faster. Fascinating. So, so in, you know, in your shop, Andy, it must be quite a sort of schedule of different cheeses at different times. And, and you talked about, you know, when, you know, selling them when they're at their best or, you know, enjoying them at their best. So, so that must be part of the sort of, there must be quite a lot of tracking how that happens in your shop then. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the fun parts of the job is kind of, yeah, getting to know your cheese and getting to know what needs selling and pushing what, what we can hold back on what's a little bit flat at the moment. And that's, that's part of the fun of the job of tasting your cheese and evaluating. I think that a lot of people treat cheese, unfortunately, like a bottle of olive oil. They put it on the shelf and they forget about it. Uh, and what they are living with a living product, you know, and mm. so it's important that is evolving. So we've got to react to that and, and, and work with that. And, and even minute differences within temperature can affect time as well. So, you know, if you're going to mature something slightly warmer, it's going to mature faster. You know, the classic one is the Stilton makers will make a lot of Stilton early on in the season, ready for Christmas and mature it colder because they have to, because we right. buy so much at Christmas, yeah. but they need to slow down that maturation. So you can, you can play God, so to speak, with the cheeses a little bit, but whether you get the same perfect end results is a different matter. Um, but yeah, that, yes, that's an interesting point, isn't it? And this whole thing, you know, and we saw that with the, um, you know, when the pandemic struck and the lockdowns and the end, you know, hospitality closing. That cheese makers, you know, who had lots of cheeses, including they, they did literally, you know, they tried to chill them, didn't they, to, to in order to give to extend their their shelf life. Yeah, it's one way to do it. One way is to kind of just reduce temperature, drop temperature down, then it slows everything down. It, it doesn't stop everything, and it's not perfect. Yeah. When you chill temperature, you remove, you know, moisture a lot more from the atmosphere, mm. um, and it puts things in status, which is never ideal. But um, it was needs must, you know, it, it in an emergency must, situation, yeah, wasn't must, it? Yeah, definitely, and and it did preserve life and enabled us all to kind of help to rebalance a little bit. But yeah. that's one of the skills. Is so when we receive, for example, something like the Baron Bag or Brie, we don't just go oh, we'll put it in the fridge and then we'll get it out and we need to sell it. We look at it. You know, if it's really white and flat um, on the rind, we'll keep it slightly warmer. It'll encourage a bit more yeast to go. It'll, mm. it'll break it down and give it rich, richer flavour. If it's really wrinkly, slightly wet on the rind, we might take the lids off it, get it outside the wooden boxes, put it a lot cooler to dry it out. You know, so you are reacting to that. Time plays hand in hand with how the cheese is coming in and how we are reacting to that. Yeah. And, you, you know, to go back to that point about, you know, the month counters, you said, which is such a good mm-hmm. expression. More often you get the other side, you get what, what I would consider something like a vindaloo cheddar, something that is very old and very powerful, but it's got nothing else going on. So it burns your mouth, but and you're like, wow, that's powerful. But then actually, that's it. It just gives you a tingle in your mouth. There's no complexity. There's no richness. There's no diversity of flavor. There's a place in the world for those cheeses, but, you know, that's not necessarily better than something which is 12 to 14 months, which has a bit of that sharpness. It has a little bit of that, gives you that, but then gives you other stuff as well. And it's about finding that peak for you personally, but also for what, like in our cheese range, what we do here is we do have cheeses that give you that bang, that power flavor. But we have cheeses that are a bit scaled back and a bit more rounded just to kind of give a balance across the board. And it's not all about power and strong flavors. You know, the classic example is 
or we do a cheese called Felstone or Kirkham's Lancashire for that matter, which are mm. not strong cheeses, but they are mm. absolutely lovely. You know, yeah. um, or yeah. something like Yarg, probably the most commonly available artisan cheese in that regard. It's a lovely cheese, but it's not strong. Yes, that's an interesting point. I mean, this idea that um, older is necessarily better is is not true, actually. And, even, and I've talked to people, you know, in, in the whiskey world who've said exactly that to me. And they've said, Jenny, you know, it's sort of what you like, you know, like just one of your own taste buds in a way, you know. I think that older comes with its very nature it comes with exclusivity as well you know to mature a cheese for a long time takes a, a capital investment takes finding space for that cheese takes looking after that cheese so much less is matured so there's much less available so it's often more expensive but that doesn't mean that it's better for that cheese you know that's and, a really and, good point yes yeah, that's sort of it's the cashier then of rareness isn't it and then yeah. yeah yeah so interesting and have you but actually so thinking about this Andy one last question so in terms of of, of fresh cheese have you got a sort of is there a cheese that you absolutely love eating when it's very young and, and fresh and bright have you got a sort of pet a pet cheese i mean the classic ones are those goat cheeses you know those goat cheeses are often two or three weeks old by the time because they're quite fresh they're quite clean they're acidic you know and they're just really gorgeous and i don't think you know you can immature them out you know like you get those mature crotons which are nice peppery and goaty mm. much more intense but, you know, it's, I really like, like, the light freshness of Dorston. We don't try and mature our Dorston or our Cinnadon Hill at all. We in and out because I like that fresh, light, zesty, moussey texture and rich flavour. And I, so it kind of, that's where it sits. Age, age in that case, I don't think benefits it. Yes, I, I did an interesting cop day cheese tasting and we got to try a very old, I can't quite remember how old it was. It was either two and a half or three years, you know, much older than I'd ever tried before. And it was really, you know, it was still a great cheese. It was really good and interesting. But I much... But I preferred the sort of classic Comte de profile, you know, which was younger. I mean, it was really interesting to try the old one, but actually, you know, the age it sold at <laughs> made a lot of sense in a way. You know, that that was actually that really suited Comte. You know, you had you had you had a lovely, you had a lot of flavour, but also a sort of lovely sweetness and a you know a sort of charm to it that you yeah, that then went you know as it matured it just became a different cheese so yeah is that something you've come across it uh, definitely i think we we do a cheese called the tiva and we stock it at 14 to 18 months we you can get a two-year version um and i just don't like it as much you know it's that simple it's um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's more expensive and yeah. it has a bit more of the bigger flavors but it loses a bit more of the mellowness and the, and the, the kind of those sweetness that kind of the butterscotchy notes and as much more of those savory saline you know, meaty notes, which are good, but in the younger one, we get them as well. You know, it's um, we, you know, yes. you get the, them both. You know, so but yeah, I, I think that the key thing about cheese is you know, time, time is about finding the right time for every single cheese. You know, and, beautifully and, put. And, yes, yeah. and not just accepting that older is better or younger is better, but actually, each cheese will reach its peak for that particular cheese, but also for you personally. You know, yeah. and I think that's the cheese is a personal thing, and how you enjoy it is a personal thing, and uh, I think that that's key as well. That was wonderful. Perfect, Andy. Thank you so much. It was really lovely to have you on the show again. Take care, no then, Andy. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Jenny. Bye. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Well, this week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me Giles Barber, 
of Barbies. Good morning, Giles. Good morning, Jenny. It's really lovely to have you on the show, Giles. So interesting because this week we're looking at the idea of time in cheese. Could you tell us what is a starter culture in cheese making? I'll I'll start from uh, from the beginning, which is is where starter cultures come in. Obviously, um, starter cultures, if you like, are the friendly bacteria uh, that you add uh, at the beginning of the the cheese making process that actually starts everything. It starts uh, turning the milk. Uh, into uh, the final product and it's it's a, a collection of bacteria that act to uh, produce lactic acid uh, feeding on the lactose in the milk if you like to produce lactic acid and from there uh, all of the sort of cheese magic happens Wonderful. I mean, yes, and so that phrase starter culture, literally, it's very, it is at the beginning. And I, the reason I wanted Barbers on a slice of cheese is that you've got a very special role in British sort of British cheese, it went really because your your family, Nicholas Barber, I think is your uncle. Um, he tell me that story. He he really helped preserve this tradition of of bacterial a type of bacterial culture. Tell me that story. Yeah, that's correct. Um, years ago, um, we, we've been making cheese uh, since eighteen thirty three, and and in common with many many farmers uh, in the villages around us in Somerset, um, we would have been making cheese from the spare milk uh, that. Uh, that you couldn't sell to the local populace as, as liquid milk. And that was just sort of repeated many, many times in, in the same villages in the Somerset area. And nobody really understood what was happening, I don't think, uh, with the milk. But what would what would tend to, to happen is that you would use whey, uh, which contained uh, the friendly bacteria, if you like, uh, from the previous day's cheese making to start the cheese making process the next day. It was a very imprecise science and, and imperfect so it often used to go wrong, resulting in a bad day's cheese making, either cheese that didn't work because uh, the acidity wasn't high enough and, and wouldn't preserve the, the curd. Uh, and you used to then go to the next door neighbour uh, and uh, you would borrow their way and start the cheese making process again. So it was a very cooperative function, if you like, uh, for these way starter cultures. Uh, mm-hmm. And that really was the roots uh, of the starter culture collection uh, that we keep at Barber's today. And basically it was, there was a different way of making, isn't the story that um, there was a diff- that lab started making a different type of culture, is that right? Was it freeze-dried cultures? Yeah, well, I think what happened, just to sort of take it on to the sort of next stage of the story, if you like, um, uh, an outside laboratory uh, sort of several um, generations ago decided that they would be able to help the sort of farmhouse cheese makers, if you like, um, and uh, look after and refine the, the whey cultures that were being used. So in amongst the friendly bacteria, there was there was bacteria that you didn't really want that either weren't serving a function or may produce undesirable flavours. So uh, a laboratory was set up and it was the John Lewis system uh, that was deployed. And he really was the, the father, if you like, of uh, cleaning up this traditional set of, of cheese cultures and in particular sort of cheddar cultures mm-hmm. into a series of uh, blends, if you like, of, of bacteria uh, that harvested all the good uh, good bacteria from the milk of the, of the region uh, and put them into a, a form that was relatively easier to use and more successful uh, than the uh, than the whey cultures, just the informal process of handing around whey cultures between local farms. Now, when, when he uh, created this sort of system, most uh, sort of uh, farmhouse cheesemakers in the area would have moved over to using John Lewis uh, pints, if you like, and so-called because they were 
sold in uh, pint measures mm-hmm. and uh, they would use those uh, to uh, replace the, the whey bacteria. And so this culture collection was built up. Fast forward another uh, few generations and the invention of the direct vat inoculation starter culture, which was a, ah. a freeze-dried alternative uh, to these cultures. The, these cultures, if you like, were a stepping stone of reliability, uh, but they still needed careful management. And mm-hmm. uh, if you if you didn't manage them carefully, you would end up with with days where you had poor quality cheese making. So in the relentless search for sort of uh, I guess greater efficiency, uh, the freeze dried cultures uh, were developed, and the freeze dried cultures allowed you to not have to uh, get up the day before early in the morning to start making traditional cultures the day before you actually use them to make cheese. They allowed you these dry cultures to to use them just the day of cheese making and tip them into the vat in a powdered, freeze-dried powdered format. And hey presto, it was relatively easy to make uh, a successful day of cheese. But there was a problem with that in the the, the freeze-drying process in itself uh, that you involves a lot of centrifuging and then obviously freeze drying of bacteria and a lot of the more delicate flora and fauna in the traditional cultures of the cheddar making region uh, wouldn't survive that that process so you ended up with a materially a different cheese and it wasn't the same cheddar uh, as you would expect to make with the traditional cultures and uh, that then that was the crossroads uh, I guess that my uncle uh, Nikki Barber uh, mm-hmm. got to uh, and and had to make a decision as to whether to move like most other large scale dairies to uh, to DVI freeze dried cultures or to try in some way continue using traditional cultures. And he and he went down the traditional culture route, which is really fascinating. And it was quite a, a step, isn't it? So I mean, he, so he then decided. Yeah. So tell me the next bit of that story. Yeah, yeah the, the next bit is is that the the, the opportunity was presented uh, that because most uh, dairies were moving away from the traditional cultures, the laboratory that was managing the cultures gave notice really that 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 was no longer going to be available uh, commercially as a product. Um, uh, what actually happened is that the, the guy, uh, Ray Osborne, that was running the uh, laboratory said, you know, these cultures are, are sort of really no longer going to be in existence uh, if you guys or someone doesn't set up a laboratory to, to retain and maintain the cultures. Mm. Uh, so they were, they were kind of seen as really, I think, a an heirloom, if you like, for generations of cheesemakers uh, in the in the Somerset and the and the West West Country area, uh, making traditional West Country cheddar. Uh, so Nikki took the step to uh, to build a laboratory uh, and to bring the mother cultures uh, and and secure them really for future generations uh, on site uh, at Barbers. And uh, we now manage that set of cultures. Uh, and make them available to uh, lots of artisan cheddar makers um, that uh, we feel are really sort of part of <laughs> part of our heritage and, and part of our cheese making club, if you like. Yeah, I mean that's a fascinating thing, you know, um, to to preserve that step. It was so important, isn't it? I mean, and you were used not just by cheddar makers, other other people making other types of cheese, also using your your these traditional pint pot starter cultures, aren't they? Um, and it's just yeah. fantastic that you that your family sort of stepped in and saved it well i think at the time like a lot of these things that they're probably only seen as an important step in in sort of retrospect in many Mm. many instances because at the time it just felt 
we want to continue making the cheese that we've always made and we want to maintain the quality of it. We tried other ways of making cheese and, and you know, had tried to, to use the uh, other cultures, but always came up with a different product. And, it, and so it just seemed an obvious decision to take at that moment in time. I mean, technically, it was quite, quite complex. And Ray Osborne uh, himself, uh, he received an OBE for his services to start cultures uh, later in life. Uh, and uh, he has to be credited a lot with, with having the sort of vision to uh, maintain that as well as, as well as Nicky Barber. Yeah, wonderful. You know, you talked about cheddar and Jamie Montgomery is a, a very famous uh, cheddar maker. And Jamie uses your, your starter cultures. And one of the things that's come across when I've interviewed Jamie is that he uses them in a cycle. He's got different starter cultures on different days. And there's a reason yeah. for that. Could you talk us through the reasoning for that? Yes. And, and anyone using these traditional starter cultures would use them in a similar way. Uh, and Jamie makes some fantastic cheese. Uh, and he uses his own uh, cycle of different blends of starter cultures that suit his environment uh, and his way of making cheese. And likewise, we, we would do the same. So uh, they, they are delicate. Uh, so you have to manage them and look after them carefully whilst you're using them. Otherwise, uh, they can turn on you uh, oh. and you, you can create uh, sort of bad cheese very quickly. So uh, one of the, the big problems is that, is that the, um, the starter cultures are susceptible to uh, what's called a phage attack. And phage are unfriendly bacteria which are related to the friendly ones that are given off into the atmosphere as you use the cultures. And oh. it, there's a sort of self-destruct mechanism, if you like, that the phage will return to kill the activity of, of the good bacteria. And, and what, what you'll get is... is something called slow cheese which is where the acidity doesn't develop the lactic acid creation uh, doesn't happen the way it's supposed to because the phage has attacked the uh, the friendly bacteria if you like so in order to find a way of stopping that happening you need to rotate the cultures to continually fool the phage and deceive the phage uh, so that it can't ever get a lock in so uh, hence you don't use the same culture for too long uh, and you have a strict rotation that the cultures are related to one another in a sense so uh, you put distance between uh, using cultures uh, with uh, the same phage relationship as it's known so that sorry that might be a bit no 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 <laughs> that was that was really you were so good at explaining things so clearly Giles and that was a really interesting insight I mean it's just wonderful you know, because you always, you know, when you start talking to cheesemakers, you do start talking about bacterial cultures and, and encouraging. And, but then there's this whole other side of actually it's a little bit of a war out there and you've basically got to discourage the things that you don't want. So, yeah. But I mean, I just love that in a way, you know, because it's a programme about time, it, it's just very interesting, the idea of the, the rotating. And these traditional starter cultures, you, the ones that you're using, the pint pot starter cultures, you touch on the fact yeah. they just they do take a little bit more time, don't they? To, it's a little bit more... The cheesemaker has to get them ready the day before, so there is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and not only that, is, is that we uh, we grow the cultures into a pint, which is the first step in the process, uh, mm. from just a really a pinprick of mother culture to start with. So it's a it's a process of scaling up, if you like, the, the starter culture uh, volume to the point where you have enough to use to make the amount of cheese you want. Uh, so you literally start with, with a sort of a, a small pinprick almost of, of starter culture and grow it. Uh, how how long does it take to grow them? 
roughly? In terms of uh, the, the from the pint to the usable starter culture, that happens the day before. So uh, sort of. No, I was thinking of you before. in your lab. I was thinking from your dot of yeah. <laughs> your pinprick. Yeah, it take uh, a long time. Yeah. Well, they would that they would be done in batches uh, and then deep frozen. Uh, so right. that would be how it would happen, and that would take another day process, if you like, to uh, to create those. But we would create uh, pint starter cultures. Uh, from the mother culture, and then that's the form that uh, most cheesemakers would then purchase the the starter cultures from barbers would be in a pint format. Yeah, and can I just check? I've understood it rightly. So these starter cultures that barbers are selling, these are descended from what from older starter cultures yeah. from what from the fifties. Yeah, amazing, very much yeah. so. Yeah. They do, and and you need to you need to return to the mother cultures, retain the validity of the original culture because they will themselves change over time. If you continue to uh, create cultures from cultures, if you like, they continue to evolve and they will grow at, at different times of year in different forms of milk. They'll grow at different rates. So they've got a, a multitude of different bacteria uh, and species, subspecies of the same bacteria that really are not uh, well understood in terms of uh, the overall main uh, bacteria heading, if you like, is is well understood. But the subspecies within it uh, is almost infinite. It's a sort of universal <laughs> kind of, yeah. uh, when you look out there uh, at the uh, at the galaxy, it's almost uh, uh, like that. It's too much to comprehend, I think. Brilliant. Well, that was a wonderful insight. Thank you, Giles, so much for taking the time the time <laughs> to come and talk to us today. No that, problem, was, uh, that was wonderful. Take care, then. Is, uh, always worth worth spending it certainly is thank you giles bye-bye thanks for your time jenny bye i'm a huge fan of peter's yard's crackers and they go beautifully with cheese all peter's yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavor and crunch visit petersyard.com forward slash shop Enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy. Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today Carlos Yescas, who is a traditional and raw milk cheese advocate. Good morning, Carlos. Good morning, Jenny. How are you? I am good. And Carlos, I wanted you on this programme because this week we're looking at time and cheese, which is a subject close to my heart because I wrote a book called The Missing Ingredient, The Curious Role of Time in Food and Flavour. And time, not the herb, time as in seconds, minutes, hours, time. And I think, and I put a lot about cheese in that book. And I I think I just wanted to explore it because I think it's quite an interesting way to think about cheese. Because one of the things that strikes me is that with cheese, we have this range of types of cheese and time really plays an impact in creating them, doesn't it? And I was thinking 
you know, if you start thinking about cheese, we, I suppose fresh cheese is where we start. And tell me about that, because obviously, you know, in Mexico, there's tradition of queso fresco. Tell me, tell me about that and how it's made and, and the role of time in that. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me here. And, uh, you, know, you know, when you introduced this idea of time, I was instantly fascinated with, you know, how much it plays into cheese and, you know, have really thought about it a lot. And I think in, in terms of queso fresco in Mexico, time is really important, mostly because People think of queso fresco, you know, fresh cheeses or farmers' cheeses that are called in Europe, uh, seem to be cheeses that are produced, sold, eaten really fast. And so we never really consider the time that is put into all of that process. Whereas, you know, for something that is more aged, more mature, we're always thinking about time because of the time of affinage and all the time of making and, and aging. But mm-hmm. in fresh cheese, is time is really important because you are really um, playing with this idea of, you know, how long, you know, let the milk to... Um, wait before it gets turned into cheese how long do you let it to ferment or curdle before you actually cut the curd and then hoop it um, and then how long does it actually last before um, you know it starts decaying and it's not longer that sort of delicious fresh cheese mm. and so in mexico um you know most of what people know about you know mexican dairy culture is these fresh ingredients you know crema, sour cream, queso fresco, a fresh cheese, queso Oaxaca, quesillo de hebra, you know, all these fresh cheeses, fresh dairy products that are used in our cuisine. Um, but it's not always clear what is um, that makes them so different that, you know, other than just a fresh cheese. So when you're thinking specifically about queso fresco, um, is really a cheese that is probably, it probably takes about four to five days from where that uh, cheese was milked to the point that it was an ingredient in a in a in a product. Of course, that can be actually small a smaller amount of time. Some cheeses are actually you know the the milk is um, is you know is taken out of the animal in the morning. That cheese gets the milk gets turned into cheese in you know in also in the early morning, and maybe by next day uh, in the morning is being sold in the mercado already and being used. So it's really quick turnaround. Would people have different tastes? Like for you, Carlos, you know, would you like queso fresco with a little bit more flavour? Does it sort of, I'm guessing perhaps, you know, the milk might develop flavour if it was allowed to sort of, you know, if the culture became a bit more active? Or, or, Or do you love the sort of absolute fresh, fresh? Is that a really beautiful thing that you would look for in queso fresco? I, th- I think the response to that is the, what is that I'm using it for, right? Mm. If I'm crumbling queso fresco just on top of, you know, enchiladas or tacos, and, and, and what I'm really looking for is just sort of mild freshness, lactic flavors that would sort of run around the sort of acidity of the of the sauce of the salsa with sort of the creaminess. And so I want a cheese that maybe wasn't fermented that long and hasn't aged, you know, it hasn't really matured at all because I want that creaminess. But if I'm looking to make queso and salsa, which is cheese in a in a in a sauce, or I'm using that cheese to stuff 
chiles to make chile relleno, or I am even using that same cheese to, to put inside of the enchiladas, but not in the outside. I want something with a little bit more of humph, more flavor mm-hmm. in that. Uh, and, and that is not just because something is, you know, aging or, or maturing. It's not that, you know, I have a cheese that has been 10 days, but rather that the process of making the fermentation of the milk, the curdling, takes longer because you build flavor at that first initial moment. So if you put, if you, if you put your lactocultures or if you are using raw milk, uh, which is always my preference, um, mm. you let that uh, sort of curdle for longer that develops more flavor uh, and then that you can turn. Then there is also another type of queso fresco um, called queso fresco oreado, and, and oreado translates roughly to aired. And here the idea is that some of these fresh cheeses um, that go maybe for 10 days before being sold, or they even sold and you know you bring them home, and you have them at home, but you didn't eat them right away, they start developing after 10, 12 days, a little bit of a rind, nothing, of course, like you know, a, a, a mature cheddar or a parmigiano rellano, which will have very hard, very, very distinct rind, but it would definitely create a little rind, and that is from the um, drying process of just being exposed to the elements to the air and that's what it means oreado that you know it is Mm -hmm. in there and then that flavor um, of the cheese becomes really intense savory umami and that those cheeses then are used for complete different recipes uh, that are need a a dairy product that is more assertive and but but i think what is important here is that i have told you and the audience that you know these three cheeses are still on their 15 days of the day that they're being made. Ah. We haven't even started talking about you know cheeses that are like <laughs> three weeks old, right? Yes, isn't that fascinating? Yes, I mean that diversity, and that, and that's wonderful to hear that there are all these different sort of subtle variations, you know, of what you would, you know, the sort of, yes, the complexity within a cuisine and of, of how this, this sort of, you know, in quotes, fresh cheese, which sounds like one thing, but actually is so many different, you know, different manifestations of it. That is um, really fascinating. Are there, do you also find cheeses that are, that are, that are aged, that have, take longer, that are older cheeses, I suppose, than, a, than fresh cheeses? And so I always think about this in, you know, I have done a lot of research of, uh, on cheese of Latin America, not not only Mexico, but also mm. a, a lot of research in in Brazil and and um, Colombia and other parts of Latin America, trying to really understand what are the similarities and also this idea of why um, some of our cheeses well, and here Latin American cheeses, I mean as ours, um, haven't mm. made it out into the world. One of the things that I keep coming back to is is the commodification of these products, mostly because of the way that we have to sell them and then that the consumer needs to uh, uh, eat them um, or, or consume them. And so, and I think this is also a very interesting idea of time. You know, if I'm making, a, if I really live in a rural community and I'm making cheese, most likely than not, I'm selling at least 70% of that cheese in an urban setting, right? I am sending it to the city and I'm selling it at either a cheese store or a supermarket or, I'm, or it's being used in a restaurant. And the issue there 
is that you have to have very reliable refrigeration, very reliable transportation, and that takes time. It's not like I can make the cheese today and deliver it tomorrow to, to the restaurant in the city, uh, and then that can be sold. Um, of course, you can do that, but it then becomes really much more expensive. And so it is cheeses that are more aged that are more um, amenable to this transportation. Mm. And that's why these fresh cheeses of Mexico or Brazil or, or even um, Colombia are cheeses that are don't withstand uh, the time of travel and cannot be found in many places outside. And, and so that's where we're getting to this idea of, you know, sort of peak flavor of cheese and then the decay mm. of, of, of cheese. And so that, that sort of curb of flavor, you know, for fresh cheeses um, is much shorter. And that time that we're using uh, to transport the cheese, to get it to the consumer, is time that if the cheese is not being taken care of in a very specific way, there's enough uh, humidity in the environment, uh, there's you know good refrigeration, that cheese goes bad really fast and mm. can make people sick in some cases. Um, that's why so many cheeses, for example, so many of the fresh cheeses of Brazil are actually eaten for breakfast because you know they're made. Uh, you know, in the midday of one day and then brought over to the cities overnight and then oh. sold in the in the fresh markets in the morning. And so yep. people will go get the be bit of cheese and then bring it back home and have it for breakfast because that's the moment that you want to have that. So it is yeah. also a time of consumption. And, and, you know, many people know that, you know, Mexico is known for, you know, its wonderful, wonderful breakfast uh, culture. You know, we, we, we thrive during the breakfast and it's because, you know, fresh ingredients from farms were coming to the marketplace and, you know, we eat them and, and at that moment in the, in the morning as breakfast. And it is towards the end of the day that, you know, you, you can rely on other things that maybe, you know, don't need that sort of freshness. That's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, yes, that whole issue and freshness, it's funny, is, is very elusive often in our, you know, in, you know, in Britain, our, our food chains are quite long, I mean, especially with supermarkets, because there's a lot of centralisation and travelling around. So, so proper freshness is so, is pretty elusive, actually. And, um, and it's that curious thing, isn't it, that it comes back to then somebody could make, you know, you could make a fresh cheese at home. We, I did a program about paneer and the Indian food rice in Britain all said, make it yourself because it's so much nicer than than the sort of mass-produced supermarket one. It, and they talked about the texture. It was that really interesting thing about the, you know, one of the things we delight in cheese is the textures it offers us and the textures of fresh cheese and the sort of subtleties of texture. And that was actually the only way really to experience it, they felt in Britain, was to make it yourself. And that's which I've done. And it's really, it is really delicious. And it was very different, you know, from from something that had been mass produced and wrapped in plastic and sitting around that was much firmer, really. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so fascinating, isn't it? So I suppose yeah. cheeses that travel, as your point is really valid, isn't it? So hard cheeses that, that can put, that can be sent. And obviously, then if you're thinking about exporting, they've got to survive those those journeys, haven't they? And be, yeah. And so it's much easier to do that with a great big solid hard cheese <laughs> right. than a little tender fresh one, isn't it? Right. And I think that um, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to think about it with Latin American cheeses because you know maybe people that have travelled there have had the experience of tasting the cheeses and then coming back to uh, England and not being able to try them. But it also applies for things like fresh 
chèvres, you know, goat cheeses mm. from France that are, you know, they're seasonal, not only, you know, the, not only the spring and early summer where the goats are producing the best quality of milk, but it's also those small croutons, very fresh, that you want to really eat within, you know, maybe five, seven days of having been made. And then, you know, of course they age and, and, and they turn into, you know, hard croutons and they have a very mm. different use. But I think there's a whole culture of fresh cheese that is often overlooked because it has not been able to be commodified in that sense. And so Paneer is a good example, uh, but it's also, you know, Queso de Burgos from Spain and, you know, Cachotas from Italy. You know, all these fresh cheeses sort of exist in their places of origin and they are not so easily sent out. Uh, and so uh, it, we end up in the supermarket and the cheese stores uh, with cheeses that are, you know, at least one, you know, one month old. And then, of course, in the United States, if they're made with raw milk, then they have to wait 60 days. So you have, you know, excluded a huge amount of cheeses that that yeah. that exist there um, in, in that are under age of that time. And and so this question of time gets really at the point of what we're talking about um, when what is able to be consumed, what is promoted, but also what people understand as cheese um, and, and sort of quality uh, as well. And most times, you know, we don't think of fresh cheeses as having quality, but I, I always think that it is uh, the fresh, the best fresh cheeses are the best quality because they rely mostly on just the flavor of that milk and that relies on what that cow uh, or goat or sheep ate um, sort of the day before. Which comes back to that point about raw milk. So would they be made traditionally with with raw milk, the fresh, the queso fresco, or has that changed over time? It has changed over time, definitely, that, you know, there is uh, more, um, more worry about some of the... Um, types that animals are treated, what types of uh, feed they're consuming, if, you know, if, if cows are eating silage, you know, there's a high propensity that raw milk will be contaminated. And so, of course, it gets pasteurized. But then um, it is, it, it was probably, you know, 90 years ago that most of the cheeses were raw. Uh, mm. This is a very new technology that has been uh, developed, uh, pasteurization for, for milk for making cheese. Uh, and and we really took it really fast, and and so most of our cheeses are now pasteurized. But it, it those fresh cheeses, I think, when eaten uh, made with raw milk, uh, they're they're absolutely gorgeous. It sounds yes, you, that's so that sounds wonderful and very you're making a very convincing case. I'll have to yes one day I'll have to go <laughs> to Mexico and try them. So I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, that you you know. Cheese and place, uh, yeah, and the how and access to cheese, which is your your absolutely valid point of, you know, how how do you get to experience that cheese? So I'm listening to you talking. It sounds absolutely wonderful. I'll I'll have to travel, I think, to, uh, to experience it. So, brilliant, Carlos. That was oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk about time with me. That's I'd much appreciated. Take care. Thank then. you so much, Jenny, for your questions. Thank you. Bye bye, Carlos. Thank you. Bye. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. 
This week on A Slice of Cheese, we're exploring the idea of time in cheese. The idea that really that time is an ingredient in the cheese that we enjoy eating. So very happy to have with me today Tim Jones of Lincolnshire Poached Cheese. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Jenny. Thank you for coming on the show, Tim, because I really wanted to talk to a harder cheesemaker, to put you into that bracket, because, you know, if you're thinking about the idea of time, it strikes me that... You know, certain sort of cheeses can mature for longer, and it it is the hard cheeses. But those are the large hard cheeses. So, and Lincolnshire poacher, you put you do invest a lot of time into it. Tell me how, tell me about how much time you put into it, and what about it allows it to sort of last for that amount of time. We we do we so we make a, a twenty kilo cheese, so a, a, a large sort of cheddar sized cheese, and we're maturing it for at the moment minimum sort of eighteen months. So we're making cheese well in advance, and it can go up to two, even three years old. So, mm. uh, but what's interesting is our we've changed our recipe over the years and and um, dried the curd out more now than we used to, and, and hence we need to mature it for much, much longer. Oh, that's interesting. So it's the because obviously you know cheese is an act of preservation, which is a way of, of fighting the sort of destructive effects of time on food, isn't it? So it's you know you take milk, which is perishable. And you turn it into this food which can keep. And I often get the, you know, when you preserve food, a lot of preserving food is about drying in some way, you know, adding salt, adding sugar, getting rid of moisture because the moisture encourages bacteria you don't want to live in cheese. So, so tell me a little bit more. So the drying, so if your curd was wetter, you wouldn't be able to keep it for so long. And then does that mean that you wouldn't get the flavours and textures that you want to get through time? No, that's... That's right. So we've we've, we've learned to adapt. Or we've we've decided to adapt our recipe as we've learned more about our milk and our cheese over time. So when we started to make the cheese, we had a, a much wetter curd, and, and actually we made a smaller cheese. So the cheese was only eight kilos, just because mm. the scale we were on was much smaller. And then we we very. I mean, the difficulty is, of course, experimenting is very slow when you make a hard cheese. So even in the early days, you experiment on day one, and you don't learn until sort of six nine months down the line. And now our experiments take. <laughs> literally a year, a year, a year and a half. Wow. Um, so now what we do is we, we actually we cook it to a slightly higher temperature and we cut it very fine and we and we have a slower acidification in the vat as well um, without wanting to get too dull and technical. Um, and what that means is our, the, our best cheeses tend to be much slower maturing. And so we get those lovely, rich, dancing, juicy, um, mouth-watering flavours um, but over time, so when you taste our cheese now at nine months, it really has very little flavour, and we have to wait until minimum fifteen and really eighteen to twenty-one months before before we get the flavours that we're really looking for. So that's quite an investment, you know, on on your part, isn't it? So you're tying up your milk, your money, you know, for this huge amount of time. But you, so what what are Absolutely. the economic? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> what made you? I mean, that's well, quite a word it's to commercial go suicide. Yeah. What, yeah, what we're doing is completely <laughs> against any any sort of commercial sense is we're, we're reducing more moisture so we're throwing that away and then we're keeping it longer drying it out more and tying more capital up so we're doing all the wrong things economically but uh, you know our mantra has always been or we've always tried to improve what we do and make the best cheese we can and, and make the most of our milk in, in terms of flavor and us and, and and we feel if we do that then you know we, we achieve, achieve something personally and, and we can give something to our customers that we're proud of and if that happens then you know, hopefully the business has some some sort of sustainability. Um, so that's always been our, our premise, I suppose. It is really fascinating. Um, this it's one of the things that I wanted to do this programme was, you know, the way that time 
does give flavour this whole process of maturing and what happens to the cheese. So have you got this? Would you be able to talk us through, Tim, that at different stages when you're, you know, during this long maturing, what, how, how does it develop over those, those many months? Well, that's a really, now that's an interesting question. And if you ask this question to Jamie Montgomery, um, he, he would be able to tell you in great detail through the cheese's life how it tasted at different ages because he and a lot of the other cheddar makers actually will taste their cheese regularly at sort of three months intervals, so three, six, nine, 12, 15 months and so on yeah. to follow to follow and track the cheese. And he will adapt his, his, his recipe according to what's going on, um, which, you know, which, which definitely works for him. And, you know, they make them, he makes amazing cheese. Um, we've always taken the sort of the, the alternative view of that suits us better is we make the cheese and we're happy with, we trust the make sheet. And actually we tend not to taste the cheese really until just before it's ready. Um, and at that point, um, we, we don't particularly want to tinker with the recipe on a sort of daily or weekly basis. We, we do that based on the make sheet and what's happening on a daily basis, but not in terms of the flavor that we're getting. Um, so we do it sort of the other way around. Um, and I think it's probably just a personal, a personal choice. So I, I couldn't honestly say I can track the flavour through the cheese because we just very, very... I do occasionally taste it young, but we taste So you're just very... So is it a sort of delightful surprise, you know, when you've waited all these many months? and then It, you, it's, it then really you, is. Yeah, wonderful. And, you know, well, and interestingly, we, so we've, we've taken on a new cheesemaker, John, who joined us um, just under three years ago. And so a year ago, we started tasting his cheeses and it was... It was a real moment, you know, it was a real, and we were nervous and, and, mm. and, and he was very nervous um, because we literally hadn't tried this cheeses and then suddenly we're going through this and of course this cheese is perfect and we, you know, he's a great, he's a great guy and a great cheesemaker. Um, but it, it, it is exciting when you, when you go in and try a run of 20 cheeses because it does vary on the you know, daily, it's a handmade thing, the milk's changing all the time. So you do get daily, even for us, you get daily and seasonal variation. And so it's a wondrous thing. And, and, you know, sometimes you can be disappointed and hopefully most of the time we're, we're excited. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're always learning. And, and so when we taste the cheese, we look at the make sheet and try and equate what's going on and we try and try and learn from that. You mentioned that you mature some of the cheeses for, th- for up to three years. Is that done in, in order to see what happened? Was that an experiment to see what would happen to the cheese with more well, time? Yes. So as a, as, a, as a small artisan cheesemaker using raw milk from our own cows, we get, as I said, we get daily and seasonal variation, as all, as all small cheesemakers do. Mm-hmm. And so for us to manage that variation, what we do is we age the cheese for different lengths of time, depending on what flavours we get. And then we brand it slightly differently. And some of our cheeses, when we get these slightly wackier, almost sort of yeasty, um, venison-y, mushroomy, earthy, those sort of slightly wilder flavours, or alcoholic, mm-hmm. those sort of you know, whiskey flavours almost, then what we tend to do is keep those for longer and try and bring those flavours out. And we don't brand it Lincoln Chipotle. We call it something called double barrel. Oh. Um, and age it for sort of two to three years because we want to sort of celebrate and bring out those flavours. And we have, a, we have an audience who like those, those style, that style of cheese. Um, and then we have another one that we, I shouldn't even be talking about because we get so little of it. One batch a year, probably maybe two batches a year, we get these very wacky, strong, full-on, feisty flavours and we mature that one for three years and we call it Knuckle Buster and we sell it <laughs> under the counter at farmers markets and it's a, it's a real hit for those who like a really, really, really strong cheese. What a great name. Yes, I love that. I love that name. And so, I mean, what made, you know, it's really interesting, you said that you, you over the years the recipe had changed. 
What made mm. you decide to go down that road? You know, which was a which is a gamble. You know, in many ways, financially, and you know, not not particularly appealing economically. I'm guessing. What made you decide to put more time into the cheese to make it a longer maturing cheese? It's not. It, it, it's never been a single moment in time or a right. We're going to do this. You know, we had we didn't jump from nine months to eighteen months. It was a slow, a gradual mm. thing of increasing the age profile because we thought that worked for us, and also. I think a, a slow understanding of trying other people's cheeses and talking about, you know, you get or cheesemakers, you get quite into it and, and, and you learn and you understand a bit more. And so we've cut the amount of starter culture that we use. We've cut the rennet that we use. We've slowed the make down. So our make is much slower in the vat. So our acidification in the vat is slower. And that is another reason we can we need to mature it for longer. And it's just, it's a very, I mean, we're talking about doing it over 30 years. So it's a very, mm. very gradual process. Um, and it's been very sort of organic, if you like, that that, that yeah. sort of understanding. And we're still learning. You know, we're all, you know, all cheesemakers are learning. It's a, it's you know, we're working with a product that's ever changing, and you never, you have never fully understood it. And if you ever thought you had, it would come and bite you on the backside because <laughs> you know, cheese is like that. It's yeah. you know, it's not a straight line, and that's the joy of it. Is the is the wonder of it is that it's ever ever changing it reflects the seasons and and even year by year we get changes depending on what's happening with the herd you know in terms of our breeding and what we're doing on that front as well so it's it's endlessly complex and endlessly, endlessly interesting yes wonderful well that is brilliant thank you so much and that was a wonderful insight into the sort of you know into the care that goes into making hard cheese and that sort of commitment on your part from you know from the milk from your own cows to the cheese. So thank you for coming on A Slice of Cheese. It was lovely to talk to you, Tim. My absolute pleasure. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. And very happy to have with me today, all the way from America, Josh Windsor, Affiner at Murray's Cheese, the very famous American cheesemongers. Hi, Josh. Hello. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate that. So, now, Josh, I, you know, affinage, which in England we don't really have a word for it, so I could, we could call it cheese maturing. This is something that's, you know, good cheesemongers do. They sort of take the, they take the cheeses and look after them and bring them to the right point. But lots of people don't really realise quite how much what goes into it. Could you just give us a little insight into the, you know, is it what's happening? So do you, do you get lots of very young cheeses and then do you then take them on at Murray's? How does it work? So we have four caves uh, that we age cheese in um, that are going to be uh, tailored. The environment is tailored to the different styles of cheese that we age in each of them. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have a Blumerine cave, which has your kind of brie and camembert, your uh, Seltzershire and Valencia style cheeses uh, that age for uh, just a few weeks in our caves. Uh, then we have a washed rind cave where we have uh, cheeses that are kind of similar to like Vacheron, Montour, and uh, Telegio uh, that we age in that are a little bit longer period of time, usually about a month or two in our caves. And then we have our long aging uh, caves that are that are um, our natural rinded cheeses like our cloth bound cheddar and then our alpine style cheeses that are, are similar to like your Comtes and your Beaufairs of the, of the world. And so, uh, you know, our work in the caves is, is really um, about 
um, patterns of repetition. Um, you know, all cheese goes through a very similar progression in, in its in its life cycle, uh, and and it either gets attenuated over a very long period of time, like with with your harder cheeses, or compressed into very short periods of time with like our soft cheeses. Um, from that, um, so some cheeses are are really about patience and <laughs> and and slow nurturing, yeah. uh, and some cheeses are much more about active intervention and and, and quick response. Uh, so the softer cheeses are that on that scale yes that is interesting isn't it so that's funny isn't it so you're living your life in different rhythms then according to the cheeses you're looking after so do you work across those four caves or you're looking after all these different cheeses then yeah we're a small team of four alfenors who who work across um all all of those each with you know our, our little areas of, of expertise um not in cheese styles but in, you know areas of, of food safety um, which is also tied into our department um, but yeah we, we work across across all of them so you know there's flipping flipping the soft cheeses first thing in the morning uh, when we come in which all of us uh, you know will take part in that's a daily uh, task where washing cheeses happens every couple of days uh, vacuuming cheddars which is a a big task in and of itself happens once mm. a week and so we're kind of piecemealing those and some are on like um, you know symmetrical patterns like they, they happen on a very regular schedule and sometimes it's just walking into a cave and being like this this particular batch of cheese needs attention today so we need to, we need right, to, need to take something. care of it so some of these things you mentioned so turning the cheeses what, what are the reasons for that all of our cheeses get flipped uh to to some degree on on some schedule part of that is about even ripening um you know there there are minerals that precipitate out of the cheese structure that will um you know, slowly migrate through the body of the cheese uh, down to down to the bottom of it so if you're not flipping it you can have uneven ripening um as well as uneven moisture distribution so like a cheddar if it never got flipped would start to instead of looking like a, a beautiful uniform truckle would get pear-shaped mm. uh, down at the bottom even though it's a hard cheese um also you know you want it you don't and you know, there's a microbial population, this biome, this wonderful world of yeast, bacterias, and molds that grow on the outside of all of the cheeses that we work on. Uh, and they actively grow. Um, you know, a lot of the molds are filamentous. They grow out and they're puffy. Um, and so if we're not flipping the cheese, they'll actually grow around the shelves and the and the, the wire wax <laughs> that we're growing on. Uh, and then you tear cheeses and tear the rind off, which is a horrible event in an author's oh. life. Yes. That, oh, that's such an interesting point. What are the sort of... You know, so what are the things that can go wrong, you know, if you don't get a chance to, you know, or I don't know, but someone just is a little bit careless or forgets to do something. What what are the, you know, do you get unwanted, you know, mold development that you just don't want? You go like, oh, no, there's whatever it is, turns up. Yeah, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in, in cheese <laughs> aging. Uh, your soft cheeses are, are you know, they're, they're, they're quick turnaround. But I think like, you know, we do a number of, of uh, kind of Loire Valley styled ash goat cheeses um, that, that, in my opinion, are probably the hardest uh, to, to work on. Uh, just in the first three days that they're in the cave is really when we are trying to jumpstart one particular uh, type of mold or yeast on the outside of it and, mm -hmm. and let it outcompete everything else. Uh, and we do that by introducing it to a, a high humidity environment with a lot of warmth to that. And so, so as that, that, that mold, that, that biome, is, that rind is forming on the outside of it, it's also breaking down the protein. Um, and causing like a lot of moisture to, to pool on the outside of it. And if you don't time it well or you're not tending to it uh, frequently enough, there's a, a defect, which is my, my favorite defect term uh, in the cheese world called peau de crapaud. 
uh, which is toad skin. <laughs> uh, yes, and it literally, that's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's it's. I love saying it. Um, <laughs> but but, it, but basically, what it is is that the the rind, uh, the the space between the rind and the paste on the cheese has um, deteriorated or or broken down to the point where it's just pure liquid. So you, when you go to grab the cheese, the rind just slumps off like the skin <laughs> of a toad, um, and it's horrible. You, there's no saving that cheese at that point. And so so you really have to be be checking in on the cheese pretty regularly and making sure that that the moisture development and the breakdown is is happening at a, at the proper rate. And what are some of the good molds that you know? Are, are there some that you particularly enjoy trying to develop? You know, have you got a soft soft spot for one, for example? Yeah, I I do. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, often when I'm teaching, I tell people this is my favorite mold, and everyone's like, "You have a favorite mold? What's wrong with you?" Um, <laughs> but um, I am a big fan of uh, Sprondonema cassie, uh, which is a it's in in French. It's often referred to as as fleur rouge. Uh, so it's a it's a bright orange or so it's a sometimes russet brown colored mold uh, that grows pr- predominantly on sheep's milk cheese. So Burkswell is is a, oh. is a cheese that often gets it in the UK. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, one and what does and does the presence of that mold indicate a, a sort of set of flavor or a texture? Is that you know is it just a yeah, good sign to you? Do you think oh it, that's going to be a really good you know a great sheep's milk cheese then? Yeah, it has a reputation in the affinage world as being a good sign of a good healthy environment for aging cheese so often ours mm. when they see it are usually get excited it's a little unknown if it contributes anything to the flavor of the cheese but it does it requires other molds to grow on it before it will start to express itself and it also needs a lower moisture uh, cheese so you know your cheese is at a particular age when it starts to show up on it how fascinating it's such a different way of of seeing the world so how how long have you been working in the world of cheese josh yourself uh, not terribly is. long. I switched careers um, about five years ago um, and left the world of, of systems automation to pursue a love of cheese. <laughs> cheese is one of those foods that people do fall in love with, don't they? So, yeah, I can see, I can sort of understand that. So, and this is so, so a lot of sort of observation. So, uh, there's a certain temperament then to be an affinage. You mentioned patience as one of the, is that something that you would have to be a patient sort of person to do affinage? Yeah, I think, I think it's a good trait. It, you know, I feel like a hypocrite saying that because I, most people who know me will don't think of me as a patient <laughs> person. I'm definitely in the immediate gratification realm of people. Um, but I think, I think, um, yeah, I think patient, patients are understanding, um, or at least curiosity, I think is probably mm. the best one, best trait of a good affinage. Yeah, I mean, because you're, I suppose you're, you know, you're looking, you're observing, you're seeing, and and then what are the sort of satisfactions of it? Is it that sort of joy when you know an order comes in, like you know, I don't know, some amazing restaurant wants, you know, a particular goat's cheese? Do you just go, yes, we have them here, and they, or you, there must be also lots of pressures to sort of produce, you know, to get the cheeses to the right point to peak, you know, in order to supply customers. Then it must be a bit stressful. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, particularly on long age cheeses, because you know, often you don't know where the cheese is going for a very, very long time. Um, you know, to take a standard a standard cloth bound cheddar, which is usually released somewhere between ten months and sixteen months of age, depending on the producer and the style and the format. Um, you know, you really don't 
have a good sense of where that cheese is going to end up until a few months before it's ready. You know, you're, you're monitoring the rinds, you'll take samples and, you know, but there's, there's like so many, there's so many stages in the development, you know, there's a, a stage where all hard cheeses are just absolutely bitter and unpalatable um, that, that they need to age past in order to, to be produced and, you know, to be able to see where the flavor development's going to be when you're sampling at that stage is just, you know, the, there's, there's a bit of science, there's a bit of art, and there's also just a bit of finger crossing. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. It's funny, I've, I've had that Yes, people, you know, I, I talk to, I've been talking to lots of cheesemakers for several years, actually, and, and often, yes, that sort of, yes, that sort of mixture of its, its science, but also other things that are sorted out <laughs> of your control come, come into it, don't they? And, and have you got, are there, is there a sort of favourite style of cheese that you particularly, you know, is there a challenge that you, that you enjoy, you know, sort of taking a cheese through, whether it's soft or, or washed rind or hard? Yeah, I, um, I, I think washed rinds for me, like the, the soft, uh, washed rind style cheeses are, are ones that I really, I, I love enjoying with them. We produce really good cheese, but I, there's so much I don't understand or know about their development. So I'm always, I always think I have like, oh, you know, we do a cheese called uh, Green's Word, which is, uh, it's, it's originally um, Harbison from, from Jasper Hill Farms uh -huh. uh, for, for people who've had it. That's an American cheese that some people are familiar with. And it's a bloomy rind uh, cheese that's wrapped in spruce cambion. Mm -hmm. uh, and we bring it in green and, and wash it in a salted um, a hard cider solution. So take it along the lines of like a Vacheron Manto yeah. or a Livero. And, um, you know, we, we, we produce this cheese consistently throughout the year. And every time I think I, I know how a cheese is like, I'm like, I got this. I know exactly the, the steps I need to do, the exact moments I need to wash it. And then I walk in one morning and it's just covered in a mold that I did not expect or, or <laughs> want. Um, you know, salvageable still makes a great cheese, but it's just, it's just, it always surprises you. Yeah. Um, Keeps so, yeah. you on your toes then. That's interesting. Which I suppose at that point it stopped, you know, then it's not boring, is it? I suppose if it was simple, it would be it would be dull and it doesn't and it's obviously not, is it? It's it's sort of complex and, and variable, yeah. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people. So we run we run an internship program and we bring interns in um, throughout the year to start you know get hands on and learn what affinage is about because um, there's very few practitioners uh, in the United States, um, and you know I, I think. The first thing people are surprised at is how cold caves mm. are and what it's like to work in cold. Uh, and then people get bored really, really quickly with the repetition because you're doing a lot of the <laughs> same tasks over and over again. And then there's that moment where they realize that there's a subtlety um, that underlies the repetition and that the changes are are minute but but important. Um, and it, and for some people that really clicks and they love it. And for some people they're like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. That's interesting. It's the funny that made me think of the pandemic and the lockdown we had in London, where basically the only, for a long time, the only thing I could do was go out for a walk with my husband locally. And we did you know, the same walk. Over and, over. and actually what gave it, you know, meaning and satisfaction was just noticing like, oh, that little, that weed over there has come into flower or, oh, the leaf buds have changed colour. You know, it was really, it was time, you know, and. Yes, and getting a pleasure from what I saw—that that's really interesting. That that yes, you know, if you didn't if you didn't notice it, and if it didn't mean anything to you, it'd be quite dull. But actually, you know, noticing and and sort of feeling like wow, that's fascinating. It was we you know, gave it made it very pleasurable actually. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great analogy because because a lot of these 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 are patterns over time, and some of them are you know a repetition over a you know a a day to day. 
patterns. Sometimes it's a month-to-month -month pattern, and sometimes it's a year-to-year -year pattern. And so, so there's these macroscopic and microscopic changes that, that you need to be aware of both. Wonderful. Brilliant. Josh, listen, that was a fascinating insight. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. <laughs> and Time again. And um, it was really lovely to have you on the show. Thanks, Josh. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great being here. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today Rory Buchanan of Buchanan's Cheesemonger. Good morning, Rory. Morning, Jenny. Thank you for coming on the show. That's much appreciated. And this week, Rory, we're looking in this episode at the idea of time and cheese. We're sort of exploring different aspects of it. And one of the things I really wanted to talk about was the idea of, of affinage, of cheese maturing. And I know that's absolutely central to, to your business. So you at Buchanan's Cheesemongers, you, you're sourcing and then sending on beautiful artisan cheeses to, to London's sort of top restaurants, aren't you? So I'm guessing so affinage is a very big part of what you do. Is that something, tell me about that. What, what drew you to, to affinage in the first place? Was it something you just became fascinated by? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really uh, integral to everything we do at Buchanan's Cheesemonger, uh, how, we, how we condition the cheese. Um, I guess it's as much an art as it is a science, and that's probably what drew me to it. There's an amount of creativity in it, you know, I think. Um, mm. The cheeses are, through the nature of the producers that we work with, they're never quite the same twice, you know, that part of the charm of, of artisan cheese is it, it's a great you know the milk in itself is a great reflection of of that day if you like you know it's a snippet of what's happened and whether it's with weather or feed or whatever and that and that comes through um i think in in the cheese but that in turn means that when the cheese arrives with us we have to treat it uh, you know we have we don't just do the same thing every day if you like and that also appeals to me so uh, yeah, so that's i guess so it, a lot uh, of attention then and and i suppose yes that the variability in a way is, is absolutely keeps it interesting then doesn't it well yeah absolutely i mean that uh, that those differences are, 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 are kind of you know something that we celebrate and i guess is what differentiates us from the cheese that's maybe made in a more in, uh, commercial or industrial scale, where the goal is that every day's production will taste exactly the same. Whereas I suppose part of the charm of coming to a specialist cheesemonger like ourselves, whether you're a restaurant or, or a retail customer, that you know that they've kind of we've carefully brought on each cheese to, to what we think is the best reflection of what that cheese can be. Um, That's an interesting point. So is there then experimentation, you know, I'm, you know, for example, I don't know, if you took a cheese that you knew, would you then experiment and try it at, you know, different ages, different maturing stuff, I don't know, different, you know, tweaks done along the way and then think, oh, I loved it. You know, this is what I want it to be like. I love this result. Is that how it, how it goes? How do you develop uh, these sort of maturing style? Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that. I mean, there's an amount of that that's true. Um, uh, you think you've just got it spot on and then and then the next batch comes in and you do the same and it's not quite the same again. So <laughs> no, I, I, wish it, I wish it was as easy as that. But yeah, I mean, there's not just time involved in it. I guess the three things that we look at uh, that I think are key to the outcome of the cheese are the temperature, the humidity, and then the time. You know, so right, I think that they, they, yes. they all play their parts and I suppose it's a bit like a little bit of a mixing desk and you have to sort of fiddle around with them all um, yes. until you yeah. kind of get the outcome, you know, until you get a piece of chilli. And, and uh, I mean, it's a bit cliched, but we have an internal sort of benchmark, which is, is it delicious? Mm. 
So, so if you taste something and, and 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 is it delicious? And if it is, then that kind of ticks the boxes. That's uh, the best. And, yeah, agree. I mean, that's yeah. sort of what you're. That's the goal, then, isn't it? Of, of yeah. what you're doing. Well, are there? I'm always interested in this thing, which I know is true. That different cheesemongers have got different. They diff, they've got different tastes. They've got different styles. So. So, so it becomes very personal. So if I bought, you know, in theory, the same cheese, in, I'm putting quote marks here, which you can't know and can see, the same cheese, but from different cheesemongers, it would taste different, wouldn't it? Because if those cheesemongers are doing their own affinage and they're maturing, they're, off, they're also off to different results, you know. Are they, so have you enjoyed, have you got cheeses that, you know, you take on in your way that you feel particularly pleased with well I suppose all yes in a way but yeah yeah, yeah and, and, and we are really proud of all of them and and i think that's almost the important point so yeah the the cheese that we sell would taste different probably from from another from another from another cheesemonger in as much as we don't have intentionally don't have the most enormous selection of cheeses as far as cheese wholesalers go i mean we have a British and European selection, but we intentionally keep it well under 100 different products. And so it's probably mm-hmm. 80 or 90 different cheeses, which sounds like quite a lot, but there are plenty of cheese wholesalers out there that might have two, three, four hundred and be quite proud of that. But for me, it's about having less, but getting them in even better condition and then looking at them as, as a family, as a group of cheeses. And so different cheeses ticking different boxes. So for instance, um, our soft goat's cheeses, you know, will ripen a couple so that they're intentionally very soft and creamy, a couple so that they're maybe more a bit more fudgy and firm in texture, mm. some that are ashed rind, some that are bloomy rinded, some that, you know, and so as opposed to maybe with a, a chef or a customer discussing, wouldn't say to me, you know, oh, what I want is a golden cross. They would say what I'm looking for is X, Y and Z in my cheese. And we'd go, well, the perfect cheese for that is a golden cross, let's say. Right if, you, right, if you follow yes. what I mean. Yes, I do. And so yeah. um, where, where, where uh, a doorstone or a, I don't know, a Synodon Hill or something from me might taste very different to the, you know, how they would be finished at a different cheesemonger, our goal is that we have our house style with each and we can be, although I said there are differences on each day's cheese, you know, they'll, they'll still sit within a band of mm-hmm. texture, style, depth of flavour, strength, etc., but how we get them to that point can vary considerably on on a daily, weekly basis. I mean, particularly with the soft cheeses, actually, where the peak window can probably be, I mean, you know, it can be as short as a week, really. And so targeting having the right amount of stock and the right condition for a week is, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what we have is, is quite, a, quite a tricky thing. And we're quite a small business. And so, I mean, we've got three... I guess three different maturing rooms that we we use. I mean, ideally, I'd have six or seven. Do you see what I mean? So we almost have yes. to create many like micro environments within those environments to kind of nudge things in different different directions. I mean, well, give us an example. What sort of things might you do then to do that? Well, in general terms, I suppose uh, the warmer the environment, the faster the cheese will develop, and so right. a cooler room will slow it down. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. just quite as out and out as that, but and but some of the soft cheeses, for instance, might arrive with a bit of excess moisture on the rind, and if that isn't dried off, it will age too quickly, and that will lead to it sort of spoiling the texture and flavour of the cheese. And so, yeah, it's getting a mixture. So maybe something soft would want to come into a drier environment, uh, but then you want a warmer temperature. So if you want to dry off, say, a a, a, a soft cheese, you wouldn't want to age it. 12 or 13 degrees but actually 
that's a really good quick way to dry it. Uh-huh. So if you put it in a in about twelve or fourteen degrees and lots of heavy airflow, you can dry off the rind in a matter of hours, if not just maybe overnight. And then you would move them to to a colder room to 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 age to to ripen, right. but not probably as cold as your domestic fridge at home. So probably around seven or eight degrees is where we would hold them. Right. And both of those rooms have humidities of around 80 or 90 percent. Ideally my drying room would be a separate room and we would drop the humidity a bit but we managed to move trolleys around rooms and things to get them in the way of the airflow or out of the way of the airflow etc. Oh, okay. right and on. likewise things with what you call a wash rind where you want to keep the rind nice and moist and damp you know whether mm-hmm. it's been washed with just a straight brine or perhaps even a, a diluted alcohol. Ideally you would have a so unlike where you're drying cheese where you want to keep the outside moist so the drying room, you want a big open space, whereas for wash drying cheeses, you want a much smaller enclosed space. Think think damp cave, uh-huh. which obviously in central London, there aren't too many tiny, you know, <laughs> yes. natural damp caves going on. Yep. But so recreating that atmosphere can work quite well. We can do that using wrapped wooden crates. We can do that mm. using even just all laid out on our on our regular racks, but we can then encase the rack in cling film and kind of creating a much, you know, right. a, a, almost a room yes. within a room. So then we need, but then we'll need to judge when it's had enough of said environment and time to move to the next one. And then we do also have a like a holding fridge where we keep it much colder and you can slow things right down. So maybe once things are ready and we don't want them to move on too quick, we have a quite big room that we can move things to that's much colder at, well, it sits around three degrees. Um, so, and so we can slow it up the, a bit. So I was interested, how do you make the judgment rule? If, if you know, let's say you've, you thought, oh, this cheese needs, you know, X, X, you know, needs some time and these conditions. Do you, Are you then judging by the look of it and the feel? Because presumably with small cheese, you can't taste, you know... You can't get a probe out and try them, I'm guessing. Or, or do you just, or do you try one of the batch? How do you, how do you assess it? Yeah, no, we do definitely. No, we have to taste them. I mean, you can tell a lot by looking at cheese. I mean, in general terms, with a, you know, say a soft, you know, Camembert-style cheese like a brie or a Camembert or a Tunworth or something. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good squidge test. <laughs> uh, is that a technical term you've yeah that's you've a technical, me with? yes yeah yeah, yeah it's a very yeah. technical term but yeah. uh um but also visually you know where it's uh, when it's very young it'll be very white you know very solid blankets of white and then as it ages i guess it'll become to have sort of caramel peaks and white troughs if you like mm. in the ripples on the top of the the penicillium or geotrichum rind and then i guess as it ages it'll get darker still where probably the troughs of the ridges will become quite you know caramel in color and the peaks will become darker and that probably you know it's a good gauge that it's probably getting past its best yeah and so there is a visual element but nothing beats just tasting some and so yeah we we it's just built into the stock that we buy and sell is that there's an amount an allowance for just tasting nothing beats Very just sensible. cutting a piece of cheese yes. open and eating it uh, yeah absolutely and, that's the best and, group isn't it yeah yeah and 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 i think just experience plays into it i mean not alone here you know i've got a really good team of professional cheesemongers that work with me and mm-hmm. both lucy and matthew have got really experienced palates and we can all taste away at the cheese you know and it's also just something i've done for the best part of 20 years and so i think just experience kind of Trumps. <laughs> yes, it's so interesting. I mean, which again is time, isn't it? It's so funny because, you know, how do you learn something? You learn it by doing it, you know, over and over again and working with something and seeing all these. And that, 
and there's no substitute for that. That learning comes with time. So, yes, so that's a, the perfect example. Rory, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to come and talk to us. That's much appreciated. Oh, no, it's always a pleasure. Lovely. Thank you, Rory. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.